Hi, and welcome to Revolution and Reason. My name is Gevi Skajan, and I'm really excited to share this podcast with you. Growing up, I was always searching for content that spoke to a new generation of diaspora and Armenians, and I told myself that if I'm ever able to, I'd create a new platform that spoke to people like us. Well, that day is here, and we can't wait to begin as we start conversations that speak to the core of our collective identity, address issues of governance and policy, and hopefully in that process, continue to build together, brick by brick, towards an ideal future for our young and vibrant republic. Each episode of Revolution and Reason will feature a special guest that can provide insight on each respective topic that we cover. We'll also be getting to know all of our guests on a personal level, seeking some insight into their lives and background, and hopefully through that process, we'll not only be covering issues relevant to diaspora and Armenians, but also slowly getting to know the people, policymakers, artists, creators, and all the movers and shakers of the Armenian world. A lot has transpired from almost a year ago today, as the Velvet Revolution swept across Armenia and ushered in a new age of governance. With that has come a renewed sense of hope, optimism, and pride. It has also come with its own set of challenges and concerns. So what better place to start than back to the beginning, and who better to have this conversation with as diasporan Armenians than the Acting Minister of the Diaspora, Babgen Dergigorian. Hi, Bobkin. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Gav. So let's jump straight into it. Um, take us back to this time last year, pre-revolution. Where were you? What were you doing? And give us a little bit of insight on how the last 12 months have developed, both for the nation and for you. Um, okay, well, about a year ago this time, I was uh, working at UNDP. I was working at the SDG Innovation Lab. Uh, but at the same time, me and some friends had gotten together to start planning for the Reject Surge movement. Um, I, because of my job at the, the UN, I couldn't be very uh, at the front lines of these. But uh, we, you know, we were getting together and strategizing, and this was happening parallel with what uh, Nicole was organizing with uh, the civil contract movement, which was the march that was going to start on March 31st from Gumri. And at this time, we didn't really have uh, plans or arrangements to join up. Uh, we were doing our thing in Yerevan. They were starting their march. And, you know, we were starting the sort of discussions about how to maximize our effectiveness. And this was with a group of friends that with whom I had also organized the, the no campaign during the 2015 referendum and um, a, a number of other initiatives. So, you know, we were a good group. We had experience in movement organizing, uh, but we didn't really have a track record of, of uh, you know, reaching our, our goals. Um, but nevertheless, we all understood the... Uh, significance of what was about to happen, which was that Serge Sarkisian was about to try to um, stay in power for a third term, which would have been unprecedented in Armenian history. Uh, no no leader has, has been able to stay on for more than two terms, mostly because of uh, constitutionally no president was allowed to. But now that the constitution was uh, switching to a, a parliamentary one, uh, this uh, 
possibility was now there and we could see the movements politically that everything was leading towards that even though it hadn't been uh, officially announced yet and you know we said we have to do something about this so we started organizing the last 12 months have been beyond my wildest dreams uh some of the most challenging times uh some of the most interesting um we're really i think a lot of the the first you know six seven months was really just about making sure we could steer the ship and showing to the public and to the world that we are capable of governing that we're not just a bunch of ragtag activists that we can actually govern and we can make policy and you know we can sort of uh uh have that day-to-day governance in place uh a lot has changed since the elections this past december where now uh we feel more confident in our ability to govern and now we're getting ready to uh undergo some uh really fundamental reforms which uh, are, which you'll probably see, you know, in the upcoming six, 12 months. Do you, would you say that uh, for the folks that were organizing on the ground, that they had an idea or they had an inclination that this would blow up in the way that it did? Or was it more informal and kind of carried by the grassroots? Um, it was both. It was both. The grassroots were very important. And actually, uh, in our strategy, we had set out, you know, what do we do if there's only, you know, 100 people on the streets? What do we do if there's 1,000 people on the streets? What do we do if it's 10,000? What do we do if it's 100,000? And we went along based on that plan. But I think the really, uh, the, the really important thing that happened was that for the first time, a political movement, which was uh, Nichols' uh, civil contract movement, uh, uh, the My Step Initiative, joined forces with a civic initiative, which was the Reject Surge movement. And that's why we got the, the slogan, it became a merger of these two. So we were able to sort of cover all grounds. And um, I think that was really the reason for our success. The, the civic movement and the political movement joined forces. Before we go into uh, a little bit more about the policies uh, of the government and uh, the Diasporan Ministry. I want to talk a little bit about yourself. As a Diasporan Armenian American, tell us about your upbringing, how you were able to, on a personal level, develop such a strong connection to the homeland. And a connection so strong that you find yourself today uh, as the acting minister of Diasporan Affairs. Um, sure. So I was actually, I was born in Paris. I spent the first six years of my life in Paris. My parents are from Iran, so we're Persian Armenian. Uh, but we moved to Los Angeles, the Los Angeles area when I was around six. And, uh, you know, I went to Shamlian Armenian school. I was a pretty standard diasporan. After that, I went to Clark Magnet High School. After that, I went to Glendale College. So, uh, but, you know, all along, I think from, from a very young age, uh, in our family, we had a very strong connection to Armenia. The first time we came to Armenia was actually in 1989 when it was still uh, Soviet. And um, I was actually baptized here d- during that visit. And then after that, uh, with Shamlian, we came here in 99. And we were the first class, actually. Now I know uh, every year uh, all the Armenia schools uh, organize similar trips. But our class was actually the first year. And... You know, we were also the class where we started Shamlian September of 91, 
which was the same time that Armenia became independent. So I remember this uh, introduction to Armenian independence along with my introduction to Armenian school. And for those eight years in Shambhalyan, we were taught about, we, we followed the developments as they were going along until finally in eighth grade, we came to Armenia. And uh, it was, in many ways, Armenia was not what we had expected. It was, mm. it, it was a post-Soviet, uh, post-war uh, republic. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't the, the land of milk and honey that I think a lot of uh my classmates and I were probably expecting, but at the same time, we, we realized that Armenia is a real place. It's, it's not a fantasy and that, you know, real people live here. It's got a Metro, it's got a city life. It's got, it's a real, uh, um, energy to it. And then after that, you know, I continued coming here throughout the years. In 2003, I came here with uh, youth corps, AYF youth corps. In 2006, I came here with my friends. In 2010, I, I came here with birthright. Until eventually, you know, the uh, idea of moving here sort of solidified in my head. But uh, but even during you know during my undergrad years at UCLA, um, we me and my friends were very keen on uh, trying to be as involved and to try to learn as much as we could about the processes that were underway in Armenia. You know, we were sort of, uh, I think we'd grown tired a little bit about, of uh, just learning about the genocide. Yes, we, we knew it, we knew what we needed to know about the genocide, but there was a real process happening in Armenia that I think uh, grabbed our interest and, and, and our imaginations. And so eventually when I moved to Armenia, um, it, I, you know, I, the, the decision to move was something that I think grew in my head over time until the opportunity presented itself. So in 2012, I had just graduated uh, from grad school at the London School of Economics, and I was, I, I was, um, I had a choice to make. I had a junction in my life. I could either uh, move back to Los Angeles. Uh, I could stay in London. Or I could move to Armenia, and especially in, in those times. But I'm sure now, still, London was a very expensive and very uh, difficult place to live if you're not a student. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really want to go back to Los Angeles, so I decided I'm going to give it a shot and move to Armenia and see what I can do. Uh, especially because I wanted to, um, you know, my, my background is in development and development economics, and I wanted to sort of move forward in my career and uh, in that profession as well. So Armenia seemed like the perfect place to try to, uh, you know, move forward there. And, you know, I moved to Armenia in 2012 and uh, immediately started working at the UN. And, you know, I've jumped around to a number of other organizations throughout the years, but also at the same time, um, I got really involved with a lot with this new uh, social movement scene that was that was um, uh, growing in Armenia, and I think I saw I felt a lot of affinity there between what was happening in Armenia and a lot of my time in the AYF, for example, well, with the movement building that I had been doing earlier in my youth. Um, it just seemed like a sort of natural next step because we were still fighting for justice in Armenia. Um, a lot of folks have noted that the conditions for the, you know, Velvet Revolution that occurred weren't some, wasn't something that was just sprouted out of nowhere, but it was something that was developed over time in terms of both social movements, but 
having the populace uh, get better at organizing, uh, get better at having their voice being heard. And can you tell us a little bit about your involvement in that process? I know that you were heavily involved with Electric Edivan, for example. Uh, how do those yeah. small movements tie in or crescendo all the way to this Velvet Revolution, in your opinion? Absolutely, Gev. I think you make a really good point here. Is that you know what the Velvet Revolution was not something that uh, happened in a vacuum. I think if you want to understand the revolution and the success of the revolution, you need to go back to at least 2010, um, where you know post uh, 2008, after the crackdown on March 1st, there was sort of a a, a, a new rebirth. A couple of years later, in 2010, with a new approach to uh, uh, social organizing and social movements, and it started originally with the Tehut movement. Uh, it eventually, you know, be- became the Mashtos Park movement. Uh, that was, I think, the Mashtos Park movement symbolically was really important because it showed for the first time that social movements can have tangible policy victories. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, you know, the 100 Dharam movement. And if you notice, each movement was bigger than the one before because every time of the movement was able to uh, uh, register a victory, it, it sort of legitimized that, um, that method of organizing uh, and to, until you had Electric Yerevan. And Electric Yerevan, you know, in, in many ways, didn't register a policy victory. And I think that's why in the face of that, or as a result of that, you got a, a, a sort of a different direction uh, in terms of me- uh, methods of organizing or methods of, of uh, displaying discontent, which was the Sasna Tzedek. And that was such an utter failure in everyone's eyes that it completely discredited the violent path. Mm-hmm. So in that, in that context, um, we were able to sort of move to the next level and learn from our mistakes. And also all the elections that happened throughout these years, uh, there was a, a growing effort to try to monitor and organize monitoring efforts and, and validation efforts to try to really uh, uh, supervise the democratic process as much as possible in order to try to uh, block any electoral fraud that was happening. Uh, so, you know, all of these things sort of coalesced until we got to the point where, you know, there was this political opportunity with this uh, change in political systems. And I think uh, a lot of wrong moves from the previous regime uh, led to our ability to organize and ultimately uh, succeed in having our Velvet Revolution. Mm. Both you and the organizers on the ground, did y'all fathom that something like this was possible? Let's say we're going back to, you know, March 30th of last year <laughs> i think anyone who says that they saw this coming is uh, lying <laughs> no of course not. i think that wasn't we knew that eventually we were going to get to our our stated goals we didn't know when that was going to be but we could tell that you know something there there became there was a specific time during the velvet revolution where you start to, you could feel it. It was different from all the ones in the past. It was more positive. It was more, it was. What was different about it in your perspective? When when we started to see how many people were coming out and how many people were self-organizing 
um, and and while still maintaining the same principles of our movement, which was that it was supposed to be nonviolent, it wasn't supposed to be against the police. It was a very uh, uh, well defined goal, mm-hmm. um, and that it was supposed to be decentralized. When we saw other people take up that repertoire, um, and, and we saw that they were already celebrating, it's like the people already people. Uh, Felt victorious and 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 accepted victory even before uh, Serge Sarkisian had resigned. People won in their minds before they won on the street, and I think that was the most important thing. And, and how much is this is due to just the natural development of a you know post-Soviet country and the political maturity that you know a young nation goes through, and how much of this is you know tied to organizing bare bones organizing tactical organizing in terms of those protests and how the streets were blocked and how all of those things added up to you know that end goal i think there is there are some structural uh um reasons for all this of course but you know uh if, if most post-soviet countries have sort of gone in their own paths as they've become uh in post-soviet countries have uh, less in common than they do in terms of things that are different. Uh, I would definitely put the uh, the emphasis on new forms of organizing and learning from the past. Mm-hmm. Before this, you were working as an advisor to the government of Artsakh. Tell us a little bit about that transition process from that position to the acting minister of the diaspora. So even before the revolution, I knew I wanted to get involved uh, more seriously in, in the government level. But um, the previous regime was unacceptable to me on so many levels that I, I didn't think I could work with them. Um, but I did have this opportunity to work as an advisor to the um, human rights defender of Nagorno-Karabakh, of Artsakh. And um, so the opportunity presented itself. I, I, I took it on. And... Um, you know, it was a very, it was, that was my first sort of experience in, uh, in the public sector in Armenia. It was very interesting, um, because on the one hand, you're working in a, a for a state, uh, apparatus that's, it's an unrecognized state, but on the other hand, um, it's, you're able to actually impact real policy. Um, and, and then when the revolution happened, uh, I, I was offered, this position um dual citizens actually aren't allowed to be ministers so deputy minister was the sort of highest position that could be offered um and initially i i i was i thought long about whether the diaspora ministry was where i wanted to be or not um what were your concerns at that point well, my concern was that I thought I, I could be of better use in uh, in another ministry, mm-hmm. but ultimately I, I agreed to the diaspora ministry because it was actually one of the most discredited ministries in the past, mm-hmm. and uh, I wanted to take on that challenge of of trying to reform this 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 discredited ministry and turn it into what it actually could be, which is, is probably one of the most powerful bodies of the country. Let's go a little more into that. Uh, the Armenians around the world are familiar with the diaspora ministry, but I'm not sure that they're too familiar with how it's structurally set up now. It's obviously not its own ministry, and it's considered a commission. Can you tell us a little bit 
about why it was uh, disbanded as its own ministry, whether that was due to downsizing or was that a tactical move on behalf of the government? So we're still actually in the middle of the the transformation and we are still a ministry currently as we speak. Um, The changes are set to take place in the next few weeks. Um, But the diaspora ministry had some structural problems because it's a ministry like every other ministry and the diaspora interacts with all other ministries as well. However, the diaspora ministry, because it was at sort of an equal level with, say, the economy ministry or the foreign affairs ministry or the education ministry, we had a really difficult time in trying to coordinate uh, a more holistic diaspora policy because each ministry is in charge of their uh, own uh, sector. Mm-hmm. So in the, the, the decision to uh, downsize or to uh, close down the ministry wasn't specifically about the diaspora ministry, actually. It was about uh, trying to reduce the bloated public sector. We have 17 ministries right now. We're about to go down to 12. So uh, in addition to the closing of the diaspora ministry, a number of other ministries are being merged together. Um, but unlike other ministries, the we we developed a new institution or a new model for an institution uh, whereby the diaspora ministry will be transformed into this thing called the Office of the High Commissioner for Diaspora Affairs. And this is going to be an office in the prime minister's office. So it's going to be sort of a level above ministries and it's going to be uh, tasked with policymaking on a more holistic level. Uh, It's not going to be a program implementer, unlike a ministry, but it is going to be uh, overseeing and monitoring and evaluating the programs that all the other ministries uh, enact and implement for, uh, that as it relates to the diaspora. So we like to say that you know we're no longer going to have one diaspora ministry, but we are going to have 12 ministries that deal with the diaspora. Uh, so I think in this sense, we're actually we're uh, taking we're looking at what didn't work and trying to uh, offer a model that. Uh, takes all of that into account and hopefully will be much more effective. Did the policymakers in the current government know that this would be the fate of the ministry from the onset? Or was there a trial and error process for this last year or so? Because there's a certain sense of disappointment with the closing of the official ministry, especially considering that there are over 8 million diasporans around the world who are on a governmental level represented through this institution. I look, I think the important thing is to... Is to um, understand what vision you have for uh, Armenia diaspora relations. If, and, and then based on that, you, this, you develop the appropriate institution to deal with that. Um, I think for the previous regime, they had a very narrow understanding. And, and in that sense, you know, for them, the diaspora was just a sector like any other sector. Uh, whereas for us, we understand that the, that the diaspora is actually, we want to have it as intertwined with the rest of the republic the republic's uh, uh, agencies and ministries that having it confined to one ministry doesn't make sense. Um, but this, but this wasn't something that uh, we had decided from the uh, outset. This was uh, something when when I entered the diaspora ministry in May of last year. None of this stuff was clear. We were we, there. Definitely was a trial and error period. There definitely was you know basically until December uh, we were trying to make the diaspora ministry work as a ministry. 
In fact, uh, until, uh, up until December, I believe that there were even programs implemented and rolled out. For example, Neruj, the startup program for investments in Armenia, and the Kyle Debitun, uh, which is the repatriation program that y'all have. What to those wondering what happens, you know, to those programs, and if they were, um, you know, in essence, for lack of a better word, a, a wasted effort. Or do these programs continue in a different regard or under a restructured uh, framework? So, like I said, the, because the office isn't going to be a program implement chamber, all of these programs are going to be now be implemented by their corresponding uh, ministry. So, for example, Nehru is just most probably going to be taken over by the new uh, high-tech industry ministry that we're opening, which I think makes more sense. But at the same time, it's going to be in collaboration with the high high commissioner office because we are going to be the ones that uh, developed overall policy and we're going to be the ones that maintain the and and uh, maintain the links with the diaspora and the diaspora community so so all of that is still going to go through the office that's the one part in the of the ministry that we're trying to maintain uh, in the office is, is our ability to connect with the diaspora and to uh, be that link between Armenia and the diaspora, different communities, different organizations, all of that. Kal um, Pitun or Aritun, as it used to be called, I think uh, it was a little bit of a force majeure when, because we entered government in, in May and a lot of the preparation work had already been done. So what we ended up doing is maintaining and trying to um, trying to uh, make it more efficient, but ultimately not addressing the really deep problems that that program has. It's actually not a bad program at all, um, but it's not very well thought out, mm -hmm. and it hasn't been, and and it it hasn't been able to be very well measured. So we don't know what the output is that we get. I mean, if we think about it as a repatriation program, you know, repatriation, just like I'd mentioned in my own personal story, is, uh, is something that happens uh, in stages. And we need to develop our policy based on that logic of, of having repatriation in stages. And Kyle Debitun does a really great job of targeting that first stage of people who have never been to Armenia, who come to Armenia for the first time, and they're able to create that link. But we never really had anything for to help us move us from the first stage to the second stage and, and, and beyond. Not only that, um, usually when, when the state decides to implement the program, it's usually because of a market failure, because the private sector isn't able to do something. So that's why the state needs to come in and do it. Uh, in the case of Aritun or Kalde Pitun, um, I don't see where the market failure is. I don't see where the private sector is. I don't see what uh, oh, what gap there is that we're that we're trying to fill because you know you you know just as well as I do the number of the myriad different programs that are uh, implemented by the diaspora uh, for essentially the same thing to bring people to Armenia for the first time, whether it's birthright, whether it's youth core, whether it's AGBU. Do you think that the, was all, overlapping? Um, with the programs that currently exist already? I think uh, what we need to do as a state is to support these programs and to figure out a way to complement them mm -hmm. in places where they don't reach the goals that the state has, rather than trying to compete with them. The approach that you're talking about, Bobkin, does seem more uh, holistic in, in essence, in that you're able to address a lot of these issues through all the different ministries that diasporan issues are naturally connected to. Um, but 
the concern in that regard is that uh, for the populace, whether that's uh, folks living in the homeland or the diasporan populace, it becomes a little difficult when it comes to accountability, let's say, and uh, when it comes to the measurables of what are our diasporan goals and who do we hold accountable? Obviously, we can say that, you know, the new government assumes responsibility, but, you know, in which sector do we look and how do we uh, go forward in this process while remaining vigilant, you know? Um, sure, but look, the office of the high commissioner is going to be un directly under the prime minister's office and the prime minister himself has stated on a number of occasions that he wants to be personally much more involved with uh, uh, the with establishing and maintaining those relationships, those relations with the diaspora, uh, and just like in any other government, the buck ultimately stops at the prime minister's office. Even if it was a ministry, uh, the buck would still ultimately stop at at the prime minister. But now we're also going to have this position of high commissioner for diaspora affairs, which uh, is going to be that person who actually now that it's not going to be a minister, it's going to be a high commissioner. They'll be relieved of some of their duties as part of the government and be much more uh, flexible and able to travel and, and meet with diaspora communities and create that immediate link and learn about the issues that the diaspora has firsthand because actually one of the first things well one of the big things that we're uh, announcing with this is also a shift in policy in the sense that for the first time the republic of armenia is saying that uh, we no longer want the diaspora only to help us we also want to help the diaspora we want to support the diaspora uh, we think that a strong diaspora is very important for a strong armenia i think that's and, really uh i'm sorry to cut you off i think that's a really important point um, in that some of the failures of uh, the diasporan ministry under the last administration were that it felt that the engagement between the ministry and the diaspora was only one dimensional, whether it be, you know, directly from the government to uh, diasporans living across the world or how it how it saw its goals in terms of investment and, you know, development in the country. But not going into deeper issues like you had mentioned about identity, about assimilation, about all these cultural concerns that we have. How do you see us addressing some of those overlooked concerns specifically on identity, specifically on, you know, cultural assimilation and not away from economic development, but away from a charity based mindset and into a ownership and, you know, a nation building mindset? Sure. So actually, um, I think here I should talk about the four directions that the office of the high commissioner is going to be focused on. Please do. Uh, the, fir the first is uh, repatriation and integration. The second is uh, identity pr preservation, but also uh, community support. Uh, the third is uh, the Pan-Armenian agenda, developing that and uh, strengthening that. And the fourth is the, uh, the tapping into the diaspora's huge potential for uh, the development of the country. So I, I don't see these things as being mutually exclusive. These are four different directions. And actually, it's, it's, it's part of a big ecosystem. Uh, because if if you do want to be able to tap into to the diaspora's huge potential for economic development in Armenia, you need to make sure you have a strong and healthy diaspora in order to do that. So mm -hmm. it's 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 less transactional and more of a building a relationship. Because especially in the 21st century, uh, you know we need to. 
think about the diaspora not as some uh, organization or or not as a hierarchical thing, but as a global uh, network that that's composed of both uh, lots of organizations and lots of individuals. And you know, uh, a lot of individuals aren't actually even represented in many of these organizations. Um, but with regards to how we're going to help the, the the diaspora, of course, the issues of identity preservation uh, are and um, defending against assimilation are very important. But I think here, especially the importance of the high commissioner position becomes really uh, highlighted because we don't think that we should, or the Republic of Armenia should be the one dictating to the communities what the community needs. It's quite the opposite. It's the communities themselves that need to be telling us what you need. In some places, it's it's education support. In some places, it's cultural support. In some cases, it's actually political support. So by being able to... Uh, have a, a more healthy relationship um, uh, instead of a transactional one, uh, I think we can get a better understanding of what are the needs of each community. In, in terms of speaking about uh, communities or in individuals within our diaspora and communities that don't necessarily fall within you know, the realm of uh, the organizations that represent our various communities, uh, how does the ministry itself plan to reach out to those folks and have a conversation because it also becomes much while it's a more democratic process it also becomes much more difficult to you know individually reach out to millions of armenians uh, what is that process or what is the framework that you and the ministry itself plan to work with in terms of garnering this information so first of all i mean it's not going to be the ministry anymore it's going to be the office of the high commissioner but one of the things we're undertaking now at the ministry which will then be transferred over is uh, a, um, a a diaspora potential mapping so not mapping the diaspora because that actually doesn't give us very much that's also you know uh, it's it's very fluctuating but actually trying to understand what it what is the diaspora potential that we that we talk about the diaspora neruj that we talk about uh, and in that sense, you know, I think this is going to be a very serious and very difficult uh, undertaking. But I think that's the first step in trying to figure that out. And uh, I, I think of at the uh, end of that pro process, we'll have uh, a tool, a living tool that will help us understand what individuals we have, what networks we have, uh, what communities we have and what all of these represent to us. Um, but also, I think the principle of equality is very important. In the past, the diaspora ministry uh, or the past regime has sort of tried to play one community organization against the other or has tried to uh, have you know, their favorites. And I think this is categorically unacceptable. Any, any organization, any individual that uh, wants to work with us on this pan-Armenian agenda, uh, that wants to work with us uh, to develop Armenia that wants to work with us to uh, strengthen the diaspora. Uh, as a policy, I, I can officially state now that we will be working with them, Let, let's talk regard, regardless of past uh, experiences. Let, let's talk a little bit about those in individuals and uh, a little bit more about the issue of identity. Um, it seems to be a double-edged sword sometimes in that when we as, whether it's uh, the diasporan community or the community in the homeland, uh, speak about assimilation, it's about, uh, in essence, a protection of identity of the culture. But 
uh, sometimes where you know we mess up or we go in the wrong direction is that that our definition of what the Armenian identity is or who falls under that category uh, is a in a way uh, isolates us from so many people that might not fall within those you know markers for what people think the Armenian identity is and how do we plan on bringing those folks into the mix whether it's you know third and fourth generation Armenians whether it's Armenians that you know have lost the the linguistic ability to you know read and write and you know the those issues or whether we're going to the other extreme end of uh, Armenians that have been Islamized and still have that heritage within them. Um, I know the diaspora is multi-layered and every single one of those probably has its own method of, you know, approach. But what do you say to the diasporans that not only feel unheard because of issues with the government in terms of, you know, uh, kind of correlating with the people and communicating with them as opposed to organizations, but with the Armenian nation that sometimes kind of, you know, we don't have this big tent and people get isolated and people get left out. How do we plan on being, making that tent bigger, all in efforts so that we can, you know, garner and galvanize the full potential of the nation? Uh, you're absolutely right. It, it is very difficult, but that big tent is actually, is exactly what we're trying to uh, create here. I think anyone who self-identifies as an Armenian is, is, you know, fair game for us. And, and we need to figure out uh, a format in which we can both capture, let's say, the Alexis Ohanians of the world mm-hmm. uh, who, are, who aren't necessarily involved in any community organizations, uh, as well as the traditional uh, organizations because they've done a lot of the heavy lifting in maintaining and building our communities, uh, while also understanding that it's, it's that 21st century mentality that I want to go back to, that uh, once we start to view the diaspora in terms of a network, I think that is the beginning steps of trying to be able to capture all of that. Before we close this segment, I want to give you the opportunity to address both our audience and our diaspora and communities at large. If there's a message you can convey to them, what would it be? So I think uh, we need to reframe this idea of the good Armenian. Uh, and, you know, in the past, uh, a lot of emphasis has been placed on the good Armenian being someone who, who is uh, a member of, of certain organizations, who goes to church on Sunday, who's really patriotic. All of that is fine, great. But I think uh, moving forward, my message would be that try to just be the best uh, in whatever field that you decide to go into. Because whatever that field is, whether it's architecture, whether it's medicine, whether it's uh, any, any other field, the, the Republic of Armenia needs that. And that is, I think, where the real power of the diaspora comes in, that human capital. Uh, the, the brightest minds and the brighter our minds are in the diaspora, uh, the more we can help Armenia. And at the same time, I think it's important to maintain a healthy relationship with uh, present-day Armenia and to accept Armenia for what it is. It's not the land of milk and honey that we were, we were promised as kids, but the, that idea of uh, the land of milk and honey, I think we can reach it. I think it's, it's, a, it's a valuable tool, but let's, we need to use that as a, a marker for where we want to get to, as opposed to uh, using it as a benchmark for what Armenia should be today, because it's not what uh, we think it should be. But on the other hand, 
we can turn it into what we think it should be. Buck, and I want to thank you for coming on and giving us all this insight. My pleasure. Thanks, Kev. And good luck with the podcast. Thank you. And with that, we conclude our first episode of Revolution in Reason. I want to thank you all for being a part of this podcast and taking part in this conversation. We look forward to diving deeper with you as we continue to explore the Armenian world and all the challenges and opportunities that lay ahead. We can't wait to see what the future has in store for the Armenian nation, or better yet, what the Armenian nation has in store for the future.